Chapter Eight of Tales of the Royal Irish Constabulary by Unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: Mr. Briggs' Island. Several years before the late war, there lived in the suburb of London a prosperous stockbroker by name Benjamin Briggs, a lonely bachelor, an ardent fisherman, and a man of simple and kindly nature every year mr briggs spent his entire summer holidays fishing in scotland or wales and it was not until after hearing a friend at his club recounting the wonderful fishing that he had had in ireland that he turned his attention to that country one afternoon when passing through euston station a famous poster of connemara caught mr briggs's eye and the following summer he made a complete tour of that delightful country of mountains moors and rivers so charmed was he with the scenery and the perfect manners of the peasants that he determined to see more of the country and on a fine summer's afternoon found himself in the little town of ballybor reputed to be one of the best fishing centres in ireland during a walk through the town before dinner he happened to see a large notice in an auctioneer's window offering for sale at what seemed to mr briggs a very low figure a fishing lodge on an island in the middle of a large lake famous for its salmon trout and pike fishing and distant about six miles from the town of ballybor the notice also stated that the auctioneer would be glad to give full particulars and that the lucky buyer could obtain immediate possession now many of us have cherished a secret longing to possess an island no doubt an aftermath from reading robinson crusoe when very young possibly in the sea if one has a weakness for that element or if not in the middle of some large lake full of salmon and trout from childhood mr briggs had had two great longings first to be a successful fisherman and secondly to possess an island to which he could eventually retire and fish all day and every day the following morning after an interview with the auctioneer he drove out to the lake on an outside car was duly met by the caretaker pat lyden with a boat fell in love at sight with a comfortable little six-roomed lodge built on the shore of a small green island far out in the lake and commanding glorious views of mountains and water and on his return to ballybor he wasted no time in completing the purchase the following day he moved to the island and spent a happy fortnight fishing with pat lyden before returning to england from the outbreak of war until nineteen twenty mr briggs was unable to visit ireland but during the summer of that year he decided to retire and after disposing of his business and suburban home set out for ballybor meaning to spend the rest of the year fishing on lake moira on a dull morning he landed at kingstown as enthusiastic as a schoolboy on his first sporting trip and longing to see his beloved island once more mr briggs only read one newspaper a paper once famous throughout the world for its impartial and patriotic news and complete freedom from party taint and he had not the remotest idea that the ireland of nineteen fourteen and the ireland of nineteen twenty were two very different countries but so simple was the little man's nature that he did not realize the state of the country until he reached a small junction about sixteen miles from ballybor and where he had to change here he had some time to wait and while walking up and down the platform a long-haired wild-eyed stranger sidled up to him and asked if he was mr briggs 
and on learning that he was, the stranger advised him to return to England at once, as the air on Loch Moira was very unhealthy at present. This greatly disturbed Mr. Briggs, but he determined to take no notice of the mysterious warning, and, taking his seat in the train, began to read his papers again. Shortly before the train was due to start, a small party of British soldiers, under an NCO, marched onto the platform and proceeded to take their seats in a third-class carriage. At once the engine driver, fireman, and guard packed up their kits and prepared to leave the station. The station-master did his best to induce them to take the train on to Ballybor, but not one yard would they go as long as a British soldier remained in the train. And in the end they marched out of the station amid the laughter of the soldiers, who continued to keep their seats. The civilian passengers now left the train, and Mr. Briggs found himself dumped with all his kit on the platform. For some time he sat there, feeling sure that in the end the train would start but after two hours he gave it up and wired to a garage in Ballybor for a car to be sent to the junction. After a further wait of three hours a car turned up, and late that evening Mr. Briggs arrived at the hotel at Ballybor, weary and quite bewildered. He seemed to have wandered into a South American republic instead of into the old and pleasant Ireland. After breakfast the next morning he determined to call on his old friend the D.I. before leaving for the lake, but he hardly recognized the police barracks, which had been transformed from a homely whitewashed house into a sand-bagged and steel-shuttered fort. Here he found that his old friend had retired on pension, and in his stead reigned a young and soldier-like D.I. with a row of orders and war ribbons on his breast. Mr. Briggs introduced himself, but found that neither the D.I. nor the head constable had ever heard of either Mr. Briggs or his island, but they told him that only the previous day a police lorry had been ambushed on the road to the lake and advised him to return to England. However, having got so far, Mr. Briggs determined to see his island come what might, and after a lot of difficulty and at a very high price a driver was at last found with sufficient courage to drive him out to the place where Lydon was to meet him. Lydon was a typical western peasant, and on former visits Mr. Briggs had asked no better amusement than to listen to his quaint remarks and stories for hours on end whilst fishing, but like the rest of the people he now seemed a different being. During the row out to the island he did not utter a dozen words, and long before they landed on the little stone quay Mr. Briggs had ceased to ask the man any questions. After his long absence the island appeared more enchanting than ever, and from the kitchen chimney he could see the blue turf smoke rising in the still summer's air, reminding him of Mrs. Lydon's good cooking. On approaching the house he was startled to hear loud talking and laughter in the dining-room, and on entering found the room full of strangers eating a hearty meal. At the head of the table sat a soldierly-looking man who wished Mr. Briggs good day and asked who the devil he might be. On first hearing the voices Mr. Briggs had jumped to the natural conclusion that a fishing party had landed and asked Mrs. Lydon to give them something to eat, and he was prepared to welcome them as became a host but to be asked who the devil he might be in his own house was the last straw of the nightmare and transformed him from a mild english gentleman into a foaming fury 
However, the only effect on the strangers of Mr. Briggs' rage was to move them to greater mirth, and as he rushed out of the room he heard one man saying that they must have sent them a lunatic this time. In the kitchen he found Mrs. Lydon in tears, and explanations soon followed. For some time past the island had been used as a Sinn Féin internment camp, and his unbidden guests consisted of a British colonel, two subalterns, a D.I. and a magistrate from a neighboring county who had given trouble to the volunteers by insisting on holding Petty Sessions courts in opposition to the newly established Sinn Féin courts. Realizing that he was a prisoner in his own house, he returned to the dining-room, explained this extraordinary situation to his fellow-prisoners, and then joined them at their meal. When he had finished, he went for a stroll with the colonel, who explained matters more fully to him. Most of the prisoners had been on the island for some time, and so far had found no chance of attempting to escape. The colonel himself had been captured while salmon-fishing on a river in the south, and then brought blindfolded at night in a car to Lough Moira. On inspecting the boathouse, Mr. Briggs found that all his boats had gone, even the one Lydon had rowed him out in, which the colonel told him had been brought over from another island, where their guards lived, and that the guards must have returned in her further that they were visited every second day by these guards who brought them food for which they had to pay a stiff price the colonel had unearthed two packs of patience cards and the three soldiers with the di for a fourth played bridge from after breakfast until they went to bed in the sitting-room there was a small library of mr briggs's favorite books and these kept the rest of the party from drowning themselves in the lake Two days after his arrival, and just as he was thinking about retiring for the night, Lydon came in to say that an officer wished to speak to Mr. Briggs outside, and on following Lydon he found a man dressed in a wonderful green uniform waiting at the front door. The officer informed Mr. Briggs that he had come to take him to a Republican court, which was to be held that night on the mainland, and where the case of the Republic versus Briggs would be heard. Mr. Briggs had never heard of such a thing as a Republican court, but could get no further information from the gentleman in green, and shortly afterwards the party set out in a boat for the mainland. By the time they landed it was quite dark, and after a walk of about twenty minutes they arrived at a large building, which Mr. Briggs recognized as Clunala Chapel, and here the officer handed him over to a local publican, who told him to follow him into the chapel inside was a large crowd of country people while at one end was a raised table at which were seated the three judges two in civilian attire and the third in the clothes of a priest after his eyes had got accustomed to the poor light of the few oil lamps mr briggs recognized in the presiding judge the parish priest of a neighboring parish and in the other two judges a butcher and a good-for-nothing painter from ballybor at the time of his entry a river fishing rights case was before the court with a ballybor solicitor acting for the defendant while another well-known solicitor from the same town acted as republican prosecutor after a time the case of the republic versus briggs came on for hearing and mr briggs learnt to his great astonishment that they proposed to take his island and fishing rights on lough moira from him compulsorily for the sum of two hundred pounds to be paid in dialarian bonds whatever they might be and that he was to be deported to england as soon as convenient 
At the end of the case, the presiding judge asked Mr. Briggs if he had any objection, but he wisely refused to say anything, and shortly afterwards was handed over to the green officer who took him back to the island. A few days after, as Mr. Briggs was sitting disconsolately on a rock at the north end of the island, gazing across the lake and wondering if he would ever fish there again, he heard the distant hum of a motor engine, and in a short time saw a plane approaching the island from the southeast. Wild with excitement, he dashed into the house, calling the colonel to come out at once. The colonel got up from the card table, and on seeing the plane, quickly collected all the sheets and blankets he could find, and hurriedly spread them out in the form of rough letters, spelling the word HELP on the grass in front of the house, and then ran down to the end of the quay, where he waved a sheet frantically over his head. For what seemed an age to the prisoners, the plane took no notice of the colonel's signals. Then, to their great joy, the pilot cut off his engine, dropped to about eight hundred feet, and flew low over the island, turned, flew over the island again, and then made off at full speed in a southerly direction. That night none of the prisoners slept a wink, expecting every minute to hear the sounds of their deliverer's approach. On the return of the plane to the aerodrome, a cipher message was at once dispatched to Blake, with instructions to investigate the trouble on the island. But, as usual, the message was delayed in the post office and received too late to take any action that evening. On inquiry, Blake found that, though formerly two police boats were kept on the lake for the purpose of raiding poteen makers on the islands, some time ago these boats had been burnt and there was no means of getting out to the islands. Early the next morning the police borrowed a motor launch lying in the river at Ballybor and with difficulty mounted it on a commandeered lorry. Taking a strong police force with them, Blake and Jones then set out for the lake, deciding to launch the boat at a bay close to Clunala Chapel. Here the road ran about fifty yards from the lake, but by the aid of rollers they soon got the launch off the lorry and afloat. Leaving a guard over the cars and lorry, the police then set out for the islands, and all went well until they reached the neck of the bay, which was only about two hundred yards wide. Here they came under heavy rifle fire from the north shore, the attackers being hidden amongst bushes and the ruins of an old cottage. Unfortunately, one of the first shots cut the magneto wire, and the launch at once started to drift helplessly in the wind towards the attackers. While Blake repaired the wire, Jones swept the attackers with a Lewis gun, which quickly smothered their fire, and the wire being soon repaired, the launch got under way again and made for the open lake at full speed. Blake had never been on Lough Moira before, but had brought with him a sergeant who had often taken part in poteen raids on the islands in former days. On looking at an ordnance map, he found that there were two large islands, one with only a fishing lodge marked on it, and the other with seven houses shown, and on the sergeant's advice they made for the latter, on the assumption that something must have gone wrong with their boats and that the people might be short of food. When within about four hundred yards of the island, they again came under rifle fire, and realizing that they had called at the wrong house, and that it would be impossible to effect a landing except at a heavy loss, they changed their course and made for the second island. But before they got halfway, a boat put out from the first island and made off in the direction of the far shore. 
the launch was fairly fast and in a very short time they were within six hundred yards of the boat when blake fired a single shot as a signal to it to stop in reply the boat opened fire on the launch but one short burst of lewis gun fire quickly brought them to their senses and the occupants put up their hands after disarming these men blake took their boat in tow and this time succeeded in reaching mr briggs island safely where he was astonished to meet the prisoners on the quay and more especially the d i who had been missing for some time and of whom all hope had been given up the whole party then set off for the mainland found that the guard had successfully beaten off an attack on the cars and eventually all returned safely to ballybor with only two constables slightly wounded two days afterwards mr briggs embarked on the s s cockatoo bound for england where he will probably remain until the war in ireland is over End of chapter eight